So today is election day in the United States. And honestly, this day couldn't come fast enough. I think all of us are eagerly anticipating the results, whatever they be. I think it's pretty clear what we have been, uh, what we'd like them to be. And this morning, for those of you who read the newsletter, Hyperallergic did officially endorse Joe Biden. And I think it's pretty clear if you've read Hyperallergic why that is. Uh, certainly Joe Biden has his issues, but uh, let's just say he seems like the better of our options available to us now. So to discuss the election and our election coverage in general and what's been going on in the art community the last couple of months, I invited our stellar news team headed by Jasmine Weber, our news editor. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. And then, of course, reporters uh, Valentina Delicia and Hakeem Bashara. Hey, you two. Great to be here. Awesome. So let's get started. Valentina, you wrote an important article a couple of months ago about Biden and Harris's policies, um, or at least known policies to the arts. So do you want to give us a summary? Sure. Yeah. So I guess we should start by saying that the 2020 Democratic Party policy platform does have an art plank. Um, the, the platform, which you can find online, says that the party supports public funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as art and music education in public schools. So that's pretty specific. And it also says uh, explicitly that it recognizes federal grants supporting nonprofit cultural organizations, artists, scholars, and state and local governments help increase participation in the arts, enhance appreciation, and strengthen our nation's cultural heritage. Um, and I, I bring that up because I was chatting with someone from Americans for the Arts, which is, of course, the National Arts Advocacy Organization. And they actually told me that the DNC's platform has always included an arts plank every four years uh, since, since the late 1970s, with, I think, just a few exceptions, whereas the RNC platform hasn't had an arts plank since 1988. So I just thought that was interesting to share and kind of a good starting point. And then, Harag, in terms of Biden and Harris's track record in the arts. We did some research for this piece and actually Biden has a long history of supporting federal funding for the National Endowment for the Arts. While he was a Senator of Delaware from 1973 to 2009, he voted against amendments that would eliminate all funding for the endowment on, on I believe three occasions. And we know that eliminating the endowment is something that Trump has threatened to do several times during his administration. And Biden also opposed general cuts to the NEA budget in 1991, 1994, and 97, uh, which were critical times for arts funding, of course. Yeah, that was, I mean, definitely, that was the period when the Republicans were trying to cut all arts funding, the Jesse Helms era and, and right after that. So it is significant that he stood up for the arts during that period. Right, definitely. Uh, and, you know, one promise that the Biden campaign has made, which is, it's actually made this promise under the banner of its agenda for the Latino community, is that it will establish a Smithsonian National American Latino Museum. So earlier this year, Congress voted in favor of creating the museum, but the act hasn't reached the Senate yet. And Biden is effectively just promising to sort of fast track this and create a feasibility study to make it happen quickly. And Kamala Harris was actually a co-sponsor of the act when it was first introduced in 2017, three years ago. That's incredible. And, you know, Harris, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that 
you know, um, also Biden was a co-sponsor for the uh, creation of the Museum of African-American History, which was also a Smithsonian. So he does have a track record of getting these projects off the ground in that sense. And let's, um, let's remember that museum, the African-American Center is like, I mean, I think we could safely say it was a runaway success in terms of people wanting to go there, people's experience and all the impact it's definitely had on communities that, that very much felt like their history was being represented. Absolutely. I guess I'd also add that in terms of Kamala Harris's track record, she has a very personal history of engagement with the arts. Some people might not know that when she was serving as district attorney in San Francisco, she was actually on the board of the SF MoMA for 15 years from 1996 to 2011. And one of the big projects that she spearheaded there was the SF MoMA Matches, which is a mentoring program that pairs students with members of the museum to foster their interests in the arts, especially for um, you know, high school students, middle school students that may not already have that access or that's not necessarily a part of their everyday life. And we know that she was also in involved with the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco and several other arts and culture music organizations that were local. I mean, I have to say, I give her props for the Yerba Buena because, you know, SF Mom is cool and all, but the Yerba Buena really is a pretty amazing space there and does some amazing work. So props to her. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Great. How about you, Jasmine? What have you been seeing? So obviously we all know that artists are very often embedded in politics. Um, the trope is that art is political. When Trump was first elected, a lot of misguided and, in my opinion, inappropriate takes were that art is just going to be so great right now because artists thrive under distress. Um, we've seen artists make really iconic symbols of um, previous presidential administrations, obviously Shepard Ferry's Obama Hope poster is internationally recognized to this day. He works in that style and people very immediately draw that connection to Obama and to the, the progressive administration that people were expecting, um, in part due to the really strong visual cues that they were getting from this red, white, and blue artist poster. Um, recently, his cover for Time magazine actually altered the name of the magazine to the word vote, and it features a woman of color ready to go to the ballot wearing a bandana mask, which on one part is a reference to the pandemic, on the other part is a reference to the many protests that we've seen hoping for change in the country and around the world. We've also seen different artists become big symbols of presidential administrations. Again, to reference Obama, obviously, Kehinde Wiley and Amy Sherald's portraits of the first couple. And so what we've been tracking in the past couple months, especially in the past few weeks, are the different artist projects that have come out of the current election in favor of getting young people to the polls, also some of which are specifically endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for the ticket. One that came out yesterday is by a new contributor named Angie Jaime. She wrote about indigenous activists who launched a political art campaign featuring the work of an indigenous artist named Murr Young and also a work by Shepard Ferry that prominently features the portrait of a young indigenous hip hop artist and activist. 
And what's unique about this project was its use of augmented reality. Um, you can scan the images, especially um, Shepard Fairey's portrait, and you actually get to hear a speech about climate justice urging young indigenous people and, and people from different generations in indigenous communities to go out and vote um, because of this really strong entanglement of climate justice and environmental rights with whoever ends up in office after the vote and after the likely weeks of turmoil that will sadly follow this vote. Um, I love that idea. Yeah, another really interesting project that our readers might want to check out was Project 270. So a number of graphic designers and street artists designed these really striking posters for this initiative that was organized by the Mana Urban Arts Project. One of our contributors, Jessica Holmes, wrote about it. And what's interesting about this project is that rather than pulling big name artists to participate, Mana um, sought out community-based artists from different states across the U.S. Almost every state is represented. And so they're able to pull in references to their communities to use art styles that they think will appeal to the people who they live near and to draw out information, draw out visuals that they think will specifically attract young voters in their home cities and home states rather than really general, generic, go out and vote artworks. These are really utilizing the specific needs of each of these communities. And you can really see that the works that are produced are really diverse. You see the artist Jet Sonorama, who is from Arizona, featured an indigenous woman on his poster. In his words, he wanted to photograph a Navajo model who spoke to the issues of concern to natives and non-natives alike. That was really the goal for most of these artists was specifically getting at the heart of young voters in their communities. And Hakeem actually worked on an article about a project sponsored by the Biden-Harris campaign that also invited people from specific communities across the U.S. to contribute to encourage voters, um, if you want to talk about that a bit, Hakeem. Yes, uh, without much fanfare, the Biden-Harris campaign has commissioned eight local artists from predominantly Black areas in swing states, uh, very crucial swing states where the, where the race is tight, to create murals for the campaign. Uh, the, the project is called Murals Across America. It's, uh, it's run by the Washington, D.C. media company Truxton Creative. The artists were paid by the Biden-Harris campaign. The murals were placed in, um, again, predominantly Black areas in Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, and other swing states. The artists were given, according to Truxton Media, full creative uh, freedom, except for two restrictions. One is to create murals that speak to the Black community. And uh, the other restriction is to include in the mural uh, a Biden-Harris logo. And uh, other than that, they say that uh, the artists were chosen organically from the community. It turns out that uh, Truxton Media hires a, an all-Black staff that was charged with creating ads, TV and billboards, and these murals for the Biden-Harris campaign. So this time, the Democratic Party is not taking the Black uh, vote for granted. 
Yeah, I think if anything, they're actually relying on it to win, to be quite honest. That's that's definitely um, seems, at least from the outside, that's what it appears to be. Um, Hakeem, any other observations or things you wanted to share? Well, I'm, I am surprised as, um, well, personally, I'm not a citizen. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm what they call a non-immigrant worker on a visa here, on an artist visa. And as a foreigner, I am surprised that um, a the, the the election day is not an official holiday in the country, and B at polls uh, the the polling stations close around seven or eight p.m. everywhere. To me, that's uh, that's that sounds very unusual compared with other democracies around the world. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. That's so interesting. You know, in Argentina, voting is mandatory. And, and Canada, I know it is in several countries. And in Canada, you don't actually have to register to vote. Yeah. You're automatically on the voting roll. Interesting. Which, which is also, I mean, some people may argue voting registration is a form of voter suppression as well, which I've definitely heard people say. Absolutely. I agree with that. For sure. Totally. So many of the artist projects that we covered in the past few weeks have specifically spoken to disenfranchised voters and have specifically acknowledged that millions of people are discouraged, especially but not only by conservative politicians to stray away from the polls, because they do know that the amount of citizens of color who tend to lean Democrat are really important, as you mentioned earlier about the Biden-Harris campaign relying on black votes very often are important in deciding elections and it's in the best interest of conservative politicians very often to gerrymander or to keep people of color away from the polls and keep low-income people away from the polls. And I, I just want to mention, you know, we often talk about the black vote, but there's also been the Native American vote recently. Um, there's been discussion about how it might help decide states like Arizona, where there are, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, Native American voters. So, you know, it's also interesting to hear how these different sort of groups and demographics around the country are impacting the voting. So actually in Angie's article about the indigenous activists who are foregrounding political art, she notes that over 1 million Native Americans are not registered to vote. A lot of this is due to centuries of voter intimidation and suppression. So in um, a, a recent Washington Post article, which calls the Native American vote a potent but untapped force, it actually does note that Native Americans are key in deciding Senate elections in Montana, North Carolina, Arizona, and Maine, even despite all of the active voter suppression. Yeah, that's a good point. And I just want to mention for some people who may not know, um, the suppression of Native American votes is, has actually gone for quite a long time. And during uh, the last couple of years, there's been a lot of conversation around the fact that the fact that a lot of Native Americans who do, might not have home addresses in the traditional way, like, you know, 10 Maple Street or something like that, which is actually quite common in some of the uh, Native American communities. Supposedly, then they can't actually register to vote. So people have said that that's another form of suppression directly impacting Native Americans. And I mean, the idea that the indigenous people of this country can't even be registered to vote is, I mean, don't get me started. I don't even Absolutely. know what to say about that. It's just, it's just 
Absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. So now let's talk about your own voting experiences. You know, how have has that been? I mean, Jasmine, do you want to start? Yeah, so I voted by mail this year. Um, it was a bit of a nerve wracking process because of everything that's going on with the U.S. Postal Service, compounded by so much of what the Trump administration has said about throwing away votes um, and different attempts to get votes that come in after election day counted, even if they were postmarked prior to election day. There's just a lot of uncertainty. Um, Even things like if your signature doesn't match the signature on your driver's license, even though many people get their driver's license when they're 16 years old, but now have the same signature as a 30 year old. Um, There's just a lot of really troubling things that might go wrong with that vote. I have hope that my vote is being counted because I know it has at least arrived. I know that Valentina, you voted early. I'm curious to hear what it was like in person because of the pandemic. Yeah, Jasmine, it's actually my first time voting in a presidential election. I became a citizen in 2016, so I was really excited. And as you know, I headed over to my early voting site in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where I'm based, and got caught in the rain after about 30 minutes of standing in line. And so I'm actually really excited to wake up very, very early tomorrow and vote in person on election day, which hopefully shouldn't be too bad. My, my polling site is just a block away from me, which I know is I'm extremely spoiled um, and I'm hoping that I'll get there and there won't be people camping out outside although who knows this year anything's possible I was about to say I don't think you should uh, say you're being spoiled until you get your vote in because <laughs> there could very well be <laughs> a long line uh, you know in general so okay so some other uh, comments I you know there's been a lot of uh, stores boarding up uh, in general as anticipating some type of rioting or any kind of uh, street protest that might be going on, which, you know, I think is unfortunate because we saw the same thing happen during the BLM protests back in June and really not very much was done. You know, like it was really kind of anticipating something that never quite happened because the vast majority of those protests, of course, were very peaceful. But makes me wonder whether museums will be boarding up again in light of this news. And as we know, some museums have opened up uh, for voting and are actually polling stations, but I'm kind of surprised there aren't that many. Here in New York, I think there's only one. So any other thoughts about the boarding up and and this sort of the attitudes or the, the roles museums are playing in this election, if at all? Well, I think we should mention that, you know, institutions sometimes serve as polling sites and early voting sites. And I think the Brooklyn Museum this year actually served as an early uh, voting location. Um, And the American Alliance of Museum has been shouting out on their Twitter several museums and institutions around the U.S. that are opening up their doors. And because we know and because we've covered this um, earlier this year that sometimes organizations object to their designation as early voting sites. So in in 2019, Gothamist found that actually 52 organizations in New York City um, declined to be uh, early voting sites, you know, citing specific reasons. And, And so it's interesting to see which institutions do and don't. And I'm certainly interested in seeing how they'll respond to this election, though, of course, with the pandemic going on, um, people have different reasons for hosting and not hosting gatherings and and stuff like that. 
Sure, absolutely. And I mean, in the case of the Brooklyn Museum, I see why they do it. I mean, they've essentially sold so much art, they probably have tons of room. How about you, Valentina? What, what do you think about what's been going on? I mean, I know you wrote an article about the Perez Art Museum in Miami, and the fact that they got a lot of criticism when they were the site of the uh, town hall with Donald Trump um, recently. Yeah, it was really interesting. The Perez Art Museum in Miami was essentially asked to host, or or rather than to host, it was asked by NBC uh, to be the site of a town hall event that would be conducted first with Republican, uh, Democratic candidate Biden, and then with the Republican candidate Trump. And, um, you know, the museum having Trump on site got a lot of criticism and rightly so, I think because we see museums hosting progressive exhibitions and acquiring artworks by artists with, you know, a a progressive um, underpinning to their work and then actually inviting the Republican candidate that stands, or rather than inviting, you know, having hosting Republican candidate that stands against all of this. But it it was interesting. I mean, actually Pam at the museum cited the American Alliance of Museums guidelines on election advocacy, which dictates that institutions and museums may allow candidates or elected officials to rent their space, but they must do so, quote, at fair market value and with equal availability to all candidates, parties, and elected officials. So essentially, the museum said, yeah, we hosted Trump. We also hosted Biden. We have to be uh, nonpartisan, and that's where we stand. But a lot of people were bothered by that, and they said, well, you know, you're invoking the this like fine print to basically get away with doing something that is actually really terrible. Although it's worth mentioning that um, Jorge Perez, who's the namesake of the museum, is part of a big bipartisan group of Cuban Americans in Miami that are campaigning for Biden. Yeah, that's true. Though I should say Miami certainly has its share of Republican art collectors. Um, One just has to think of the ICA in Miami, the Institute of Contemporary Art, and Norman Brahman, who's been uh, very active in the Marco Rubio um, campaign and has for years and is often involved in in Miami uh, Basel. So... (laughs) One wonders if the museum's decision was also a little political for their local landscape too. So eh, it could be either of those maybe. So now let's think. Anything else anybody would like to bring up from a lot of our coverage? We've been covering things, you know, every day for the last how long? So any final thoughts? Any uh, words of encouragement from anyone? I would say that for anyone who needs some sort of small relief today to return back to the absolute elation that they felt when they found out that a fly landed on Mike Pence's head during the vice presidential debate, that (laughs) consistently brings a smile to my face when I think about the absolute mess that is this election. Oh, that's such that's such a good good words of advice. How about how about you, Hakeem or Valentina? Anything you'd like to share? Yesterday we had an amusing report about uh, a wax museum in Berlin, Germany, that had dumped dumb Donald uh, Trump quite literally. What they did is remove the wax figure of uh, the American president into a dumpster with a sign that said on the dumpster, "Make America Great Again, Dump Trump." And uh, it remains to be seen if Americans will really dump Trump this year. Or if Trump will allow himself to be dumped. 
well put. Well put. Well, if people are looking for things to sort of get their mind off today, because I know it's such anxiety-inducing day, I just want to encourage them to read some of our film and documentary reviews by Dan Schindel and others. So, um, you know, and also a little uh, tip for those movie and art film lovers. Um, on the Criterion channel this month, Sky Hopinka has a series of short films that will be shown. So, Maybe you take a few moments, go look at some art on your screen, think about something else, and just remember that, you know, democracy demands we all do our part. So I hope all of you vote. And I just want to thank the best news team in arts journalism anywhere. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Valentina. Thank you, Hakeem. Thank you, Anag. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. (laughs) Fingers crossed. The featured artist this episode is Teddy Gold. And the track you're hearing, for those of you who are on Instagram, you may recognize it. For those uh, who have seen the Get Out to Vote little uh, pop-ups and and badges that appear on Instagram, well, this has been the official song for the last month or so. It's called Wink Wink. Thanks to Gold for letting us use the track. My name is Harag Vartanyan. I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and please vote.